Even if war is sometimes morally justified, if we grant that there is such a thing as a just war, that doesn't mean that war-making institutions or militaries are justified in existing. When you encounter someone who can kill people and you ask them, how does that feel? And they say, it feels like nothing to me. I would say that person is already morally injured. If we're deploying these people to go overseas and do things on the state's behalf, such as kill, we want to do everything that we can to ensure that that doesn't ruin them for life. My guest today is Dr. Ned Dobosch, who's a senior lecturer in international and political studies at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. He's the author of two books, Ethics, Security and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military, as well as Insurrection and Intervention. And his research has appeared in journals such as Philosophical Studies, Ethics and International Affairs, Journal of Applied Philosophy, Journal of Moral Philosophy, and International Studies Quarterly. He joins me today to discuss his more recent book, Ethics, Security, and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military. I finished this book a few days ago and have found it to be exceptionally insightful, very timely, and actually really brave. Given the ongoing militarization and growing geopolitical tensions, I think you'll understand why I say brave as we delve into the book's messages. Ned, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. My pleasure. Before we get stuck into the book, uh, we must first address the obvious elephant in the room. Uh, given your surname and the fact that I can actually pronounce it properly, uh, I think we share some common uh, cultural heritage. What is your cultural background? So my parents are from the, the former Yugoslavia. My mother is ethnically Serb. My father is ethnically Croat. Right. So, uh, the, so the, the movie Wog Boy uh, uh, would have brought some uh, would have brought some jokes for you. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Tony the Yugoslav. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> right. Okay. It's very interesting. I mean, I think the book again has become evident as we talk. I, I said at the start that it's brave, especially given the fact that you teach at the Australian Defence Force Academy, and ultimately the book's title. I mean, which is you know the true cost of the military, in itself is somewhat controversial. Maybe we can start by, uh, you know, getting to explain what, what is the main thesis of the book? What are you actually trying to, uh, to achieve with it? All right. So even if war is sometimes morally justified, if we grant that there is such a thing as a just war, that doesn't mean that war-making institutions or militaries are justified in existing. So that's it in a nutshell, but, but I'll mm. flesh that out a bit. So all sorts of things can be justified under certain circumstances. In fact, you know, for any action you can think of, no matter how cruel or disgusting or evil it is, I bet you I can think of a scenario where it would actually be justified to do that thing, mm, mm. okay? So let's say torture, for example. Mm. I can easily describe a scenario where most people would agree that torture would be justified, I think. You know, there's mm. a terrorist, he's planted a bomb, the clock is ticking, if you torture him, He'll give up the information. You'll be able to defuse the bomb. If you don't torture him, he won't disclose it. A million people will die. Mm. Uh, you know, in that kind of scenario, I'm prepared to say, look, maybe torture would be justified. Fine. But does that mean we should have a department of torture mm. with torture facilities and training centers that our taxes pay for? Should we have a public institution devoted to torture just because uh, we can imagine cases where torture is justified? I think most people will agree. Surely not. Mm. Mm -hmm. So if we're, we're asking whether militaries are justified in existing, 
it's not enough to simply point out that war can be justified because even if that's true, it doesn't follow that it's permissible mm. to prepare for war by militarizing. And, you know, relatedly, whenever I talk to people about this, I often quickly encounter this question that's, that's apparently meant to settle the matter. Uh, the question usually goes something like, but what will we do if? Mm. My sister, I had a conversation with her last week and she said, well, what will we do if China invades? Right? Think about what's happening there. The, the questioner is identifying a scenario where it looks like if we don't have a military, we have little or no defensive recourse. But again, what will we do if dot, 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 by itself is not a very good argument for, for anything. Mm. And try and tease this out. Just think about how that argument sounds in different contexts. Mm. Okay, so, so let's, you know, very topical. We had another mass shooting in the US mm. recently. Back in 2019, there were a spate of these mass shootings in quick succession. And as what usually happens when these things occur, a lot of people start calling for tighter gun control. Mm. Uh, particularly at the time in 2019, people were focusing on the, the kind of high capacity semi-automatic assault rifles, saying that these things should be prohibited. Why do civilians need these assault rifles? Mm. Right? But then along comes one guy on Twitter and asks serious question asks, well, I live in a rural area. There are these groups of feral hogs that stampede around, you know, and he asks something like this. If I don't have my high capacity semi-automatic, what am I meant to do if 30 to 50 feral hogs break into my yard while my small kids are playing there, mm. right? So this guy's basically asking, if I don't have a machine gun, what will I do if? Mm. Dot, dot, mm. dot. He's describing mm. a scenario in which only one of these weapons will give him a chance of defending his children mm. yeah. against this threat. And on the basis of this, he's insinuating that it's legitimate for him to have this weapon. Mm. Now, nobody took that seriously, right? In fact, that tweet became like a meme, became this mm. object of ridicule on the internet. So what will we do if a foreign aggressor threatens our sovereignty, mm. that's just a scaled up version of what will I do if a stampede of feral hogs breaks into my yard while my small... So all I'm, all I'm, I appreciate that there are disanalogies, mm. right? Mm. All I'm really trying to say is these questions by themselves aren't compelling arguments for anything. There's much mm. more that we need to consider before we can reach any conclusion. And, you know, in the gun case, that's just obvious to us. We just mm. say, fine, there might be rare scenarios where you need this weapon, to defend your children against feral hogs. But we've mm. got to consider all of the costs associated with allowing people to have these weapons. Yeah. And my book is just making the same move mm. with regards to the military. The military also has costs. Yeah. And in order to determine whether that institution is justified in existing, we've got to do a kind of a moralized cost-benefit analysis. It's not mm. enough to simply point out that sometimes we might need it and sometimes its use would be justified. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, bottom line up front, I mean, I, I say this time and time again, I'm, I'm as close to a pacifist as one can be while wearing uniforms. So I, I wholeheartedly agree that if we could make the militaries around the world, if we could all become Costa Rica, I would be a very happy man, even though I wouldn't have a job. But that would be a very small price to pay. The only thing that pops into my mind, though, is, I mean, I have car insurance. I have home insurance. And all of this is for the what if. And I'm prepared to pay that premium, even though, you know, that premium is going to, it's unlikely going to be around, you know, 2% of my uh, personal GDP 
uh, for the year, but it's certainly you know high enough for me to you know strongly consider is this worth it. But then I look at the cost versus benefit and I said, okay, well that's a fair enough investment to have security against the unforeseen event that I ultimately can't really plan for. And as we all know, geopolitics, war is not rational. It's emotional. It's human. Uh, it just happens. You know, there are upstream causes that will lead to it, of course. But you know, to not have an insurance policy against such an attack, you know, some would probably question. Yeah, I, I think the way you're thinking of it is spot on, and it's the way that I would be inclined to think of, think of it. The military should be thought of as kind of insurance coverage. Mm. You have it just just in case. But that's for me. That's kind of grist for the mill because let's mm. go, go back to your scenario of the home insurance. Mm. Presumably. Maz, you would agree that there comes a point at which the premiums are so high, it's no longer rational. Yes. Yeah. Right? I remember when I first bought a place here in Canberra, uh, I got the home insurance and then contents insurance were offered. And I was a single bachelor. I had nothing of value mm. in my house except my PlayStation. Mm. <laughs> and I, and I, yeah. I looked at the, the premiums that were going to charge me for my contents insurance, and I just thought, it's not worth it. Mm. Right? So... With regards to insurance, I just think we need to be open to the proposition that it's not worth having regardless of what the cost is, mm. you know, mm. whereas when we talk about the military, our mental model deviates from the insurance model because we act as though it is worth having regardless of what the cost is. But we don't think of other insurance policies like that. Mm. With every other insurance policy, we say, okay, let's see what I'm getting. Let's see what the risk is. Let's see what the cost is. And I'm just saying we ought to do all of that stuff with regards to the military. Now, sometimes the conclusion will be, yeah, the military is costly, but it's still worth having given our circumstances, given the likelihood of conflict in our region, so on and so forth. Mm. But I think we should be open to the possibility that sometimes for some countries in some places, maybe the answer will be, the same answer I reached when I was offered contents insurance, which is mm. eh, it's not worth it, and that's mm. exactly the conclusion that the Costa Ricans came to. Yeah, they're like, uh, yeah, yeah. There's some benefits to be had by having this institution, but there's also some costs, and we don't really have any enemies, and mm. Uh, mm. we, you know, our schools are dilapidated, and our environments going to hell. So they just decided to repurpose their military spending into that. It's not obvious to me that what Costa Rica did back then was just obviously irrational and stupid. Mm. Maybe it was just appropriate. They haven't been invaded, right? <laughs> yes. There have been attempts, right? The Nicaragua tried to encroach on their territory several times shortly mm. after demilitarization, but they just found other ways to handle that. Mm. But wasn't one of the reasons that they had a big, bad, powerful friend to the north by the name of uh, US that had a much bigger stick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, there's no way to to falsify that. Yes, yeah. You know, so yeah, like you could always say, well, the reason they haven't been invaded is because everyone else is deterred by the, yeah. the prospect of US intervention. Yeah. Maybe, but what's the proof of that? Yeah. Maybe they haven't been invaded because nobody wants to invade them. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's as simple as that. Maybe it doesn't need deterring. Just yeah. like if I were to go and burgle my neighbor's house, there's a good chance that I would be caught and punished for mm. it by the state. And that's enough to deter me. But frankly, I don't need deterring. I don't want to go and burgle my neighbor's house. I'd rather have good relations. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. there's not that much yeah. to be gained. You know, it doesn't look like they're particularly well to do. So I don't think they have any $50,000 watches. So, you know. Yeah, the motivation is lacking. The incentive, the incentive is not there. Yeah, I'm just saying that's possible. There's this kind of tendency in international relations discourse in particular to think that country A has not invaded country B. 
it must be because country A has been deterred by country B's military. Mm. But mm. we don't think like that in any other domain. We don't think, well, there's these two people walking down the street. That guy is not beating up that guy. It must be because he's scared of the police. Mm. Yeah. Maybe there's other reasons. Maybe he's just not a jerk. I totally hear you. That seems to be the sensitivity with people, that it's simply unthinkable that, you know, say China would not invade Australia because we are such a resource-rich country and we have so much space. And therefore, you know, we need to have insurance policy. Now, the issue as well is that, you know, when we are debating our insurance policy, i.e. the cost versus benefit or, you know, the risk profile versus what we need to get, we're speaking to the, you know, insurance broker in the form of the military industrial complex, which, you know, is the revolving door between defense and defense suppliers and defense contractors and, you know, the entire defense industry. Uh, so, of course, the risk gets elevated to the point where, you know, you continuously need to upspend, need to increase your expenditure because the risk of uh, not doing so means that you'll be, you know, caught with your pants down, so to speak. This very much leads to the classic uh, security dilemma. Can you explore how we find ourselves in that, I guess, security dilemma and how does this investment in the military contribute to it? Okay. So, I mean, the classic security dilemma is what happens when you've got multiple agents all seeking their own security, making investments in their own security, and by so doing, causing insecurity in others, which in turn puts themselves at risks. And in the worst case scenario, this can kind of boil over into, into a sort of a preventive strike or mm. defensive aggression, as I I call it in the book. There have been lots of cases like this. Some wars that have occurred in history have been what we might call opportunistic aggression, mm -hmm. where it's sort of what you described that people are worried about with regards to China. We've got these natural resources. If we're defenseless, they'll exploit that weakness and pounce, right? So they're coming to gain. Mm -hmm. So, And that, that's happened through history, that kind of opportunistic aggression. But there's another kind of aggression that's happened time and time again through history as well, which is fear-induced aggression, where it's not, let's go and get what they have. They've got some offensive capabilities over there. Who knows what they're planning? We better get in first so mm. that we never have to find out. Yeah. Okay. Because you talk about the preemptive strike experiment in the book, and maybe you can touch on that because I think that's a really, really useful and nuanced way to think about this. So what is the preemptive strike experiment? Yeah, so the preemptive strike aim, it should probably be referred to as the preventive strike aim for terminological mm. accuracy. But, but basically, they, the experiment involved giving people a certain amount of money and pairing them up. So you've got mm -hmm. two players. Each player has a button. And that button, if you press it, that constitutes an attack. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And if you press your button... You lose some of your money. I think it was like a thousand dollars. You lose, say, you lose a hundred dollars out of mm -hmm. a thousand, but the other guy loses nine hundred dollars. Mm. Okay, mm. and vice versa. Okay, but if neither of you press your button after one minute, then you both go home with a thousand dollars. And so mm. that's clearly the optimal strategy. Mm. Just don't press your buttons. But of course, everyone looks and thinks, "Oh, but he's got a button." If he presses his button, I'll lose 900. Mm. So I better press my button first mm. so that he loses 900 and I only lose 100. Mm. Yeah. So basically, in order to protect themselves, people end up attacking. Yeah. People attack out of defensive motives because they're mm. worried about what you might do in the future with your offensive 
capabilities. So, which is that fear-induced defensive aggression, as you exactly. Call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I think this this really kind of complicates the rationality of having a a military establishment. So mm. we focus almost entirely on the deterrent effects of militaries without factoring in the provocative effects mm. of militaries. So I, I, I like to use this analogy sometimes, you know, just kind of using guns again, just because it helps us think through some of these issues. So, you know, imagine you're about to walk into a hypothetical scenario. You're about to walk into some gathering, mm. a house party, where there's going to be all sorts of violent criminals and you know this and they're eager to get their hands on your your property your sneakers or your watch mm. or whatever mm. before you go in there i didn't realize you grew up in sydney as well <laughs> <laughs> western suburbs of, yeah. of melbourne so yeah. yeah right okay so yeah, yeah went to the same parties then <laughs> <laughs> so suppose before you enter this gathering i offer you a gun or a, a knife to protect yourself and, you know, let's say there's not going to be any police there, so you've got no other recourse. Now, on the face of it, it seems quite sensible, prudent for you to accept the weapon, like just in case. So you can deter with your knife and you can fend off these marauders if they come after you. But now suppose I kind of throw some additional information in there. I say, look, aside from these violent bandits that want your sneakers, uh, there's going to be some kind of highly paranoid schizophrenics in there as well. Mm. And they think everyone's out to get them. I don't, they don't want your stuff. They don't want your sneakers. But if they see you as a threat, they'll come after you. They'll strike first, right? Mm. Is it still sensible for you to take the weapon? Mm. Mm. And it's just not so clear anymore, right? Granted, if you openly carry the knife into the gathering, it will have some deterrent effect on the ones that want your sneakers, on the, mm. the, the marauders. They would always prefer to go after an easy target, someone weak and defenseless, take their sneakers. Mm. But at the same time, openly carrying the knife makes you a target for the highly paranoid types. Mm. They're mm. not interested in your property, but they are interested in neutralizing the threats that they perceive. And the knife in your hand puts you in that category. Mm. Right? Mm. And yeah. so that complicates the decision considerably. It might be prudent to accept the weapon. It might not be. It depends on other variables. But the point is, in this scenario, you can't confidently generalize that going in armed is always the prudent thing to do. Being mm. defenseless might actually increase your chances of survival. Being defenseless might be more rational, as paradoxical mm. as that sounds. Mm. Mm. Defenses go down, but your security goes up, mm. right? Because if you go in armed, you invite, yes, you deter one kind of aggression, but you invite fear-induced aggression yeah. or, or preventive aggression. You yeah. take the risk of provoking the paranoid types. And I, I think we should think of the international arena as that house party writ mm. large, right? And th this is not my idea. This is Hobbes, right? Mm. There are three mm. causes of war. One of them is uh, competition. One state attacks another to acquire its territory or resources. But the other is what he calls diffidence. Mm. One state attacks another to remove a looming threat that the latter is thought to pose. Mm. Right? The, the aggressors here are the paranoid types. Mm. So standing armies, insofar as they wield both offensive and defensive capabilities, yeah, they deter the first kind of aggressor, but they're liable to provoke the second. And, mm. and that just opens the possibility of, of a military being self-defeating yeah. In the sense of it reduces the overall level of security of its parent society.
Mm. Right. Mm. So the that the important insight there is, you know, you watch the news and politicians will say we need to strengthen our national security. And by that they mean we need more military capability. As though more military capability and more national security are the same thing. They're not. Mm. Okay. They they aren't identical. You've mm. got to think about how other agents are going to react to your increased military yeah. capabilities. And if the consequence is that they're going to react in a way that, that makes them actually more likely to attack you because they fear you more, then your military capability has gone up, but your security hasn't gone up with it. It's gone down, yeah. right? But that's the security dilemma, right? That's where we... Exactly right. Exactly right. I can just hear some of my listeners say, hold on a minute, but what about Russia right now? You know, we tried the peaceful solutions. We tried to, you know, make security arrangements with Russia. Uh, you know, we tried to bring Russia into the fold. In fact, many will say we tried to bring China into the fold. But look where we are. You know, Russia is invading Ukraine. You know, there's war crimes going on. China is, uh, you know, becoming more and more aggressive, uh, despite, as some would say, the Western or global even attempts to integrate them into the global community in a more peaceful way. How do you respond to that? Yeah, look, there, there's the kind of empirical social scientific stuff in here about whether and the extent to which we have adequately tried to deal peacefully with China and Russia and, and so on and so forth. But let's kind of set that aside and, and grant for the sake of, I mean, we, with the, the, the Russia example, I think one thing worth thinking about is if you accept Putin's narrative, at least, and I'm not saying that I do, but his narrative at least is that what I'm doing is fear-induced aggression, mm. right? I'm not trying to conquer new land to create a Russian empire. Essentially, what I'm worried about is Ukraine proposing to join NATO and thereby making Europe's army its own mm. and putting it right on my border. Yeah, so it's increasing one security at the cost of someone else's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, and there's something to be said for that. I'm not sure if this is right, but I heard somewhere a credible source that Russia started preparing for this operation almost immediately after Ukraine announced its intentions to join NATO. Mm, right. Mm. So that that kind of lends some support to the idea that this is not an opportunistic intervention that you can try and prevent by becoming stronger, this is the kind of aggression that you provoke precisely by trying to become stronger, Yeah. right? Some people look at this situation in Ukraine and say, well, see, this is why Ukraine needs to have a stronger military, and this is why we all need to have a stronger military. Mm. That's, and that's one way to look at it. But then the other way to look at it is this happened in part precisely because mm. Ukraine was trying to strengthen its military capabilities. So, yeah. you know, is military strength here something that helps or is it the liability? You know, if, suppose if Ukraine were demilitarized, right? And this is one of Putin's kind of stated objectives to demilitarize Ukraine. Suppose Ukraine were already demilitarized or rather than ramping up their, their military spending and proposing to join NATO, they were proposing to go in the opposite direction mm. and being more neutral and more demilitarized. Would this war still have happened? Would Russia still have invaded under those circumstances? Well, it did in 2014. I, I've had this discussion a number of times with people from uh, both Ukraine, but also NATO and et cetera. But I think the, the theory is no longer sound because, you know, well, 
Putin has accepted that Sweden and Finland, right. you know, and had as openly said, yeah, I'm fine. I've got no issue with them going yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. into NATO. So that, that's been kind of shot out of the water. It might be a, a, a neat narrative for him to, uh, you know, challenge the globe or present a narrative that, that has some resemblance of, of credibility to it. But then, you know, we also know that, you know, Crimea was an annexation. You know, that is a land grab. We also know Donbass, that's a land grab. Yeah, yeah, Having yeah. said that, though, this is not me trying to to argue against the point you're making, because, I, again, I do agree. The point I think we need to talk about is the upstream causes that bring us down to this point. Like Ukraine yeah. is not now, as in this that yeah, didn't yeah. happen today. This is a build-up, you know, yeah. post the fall of the Soviet Union. And could we have done something to pacify, you know, Russia in a way, especially, of course, this is a war in many ways between Russia and the U.S. and the U.S., the global hegemon, uh, calling the shots, you know, has it always treated Russia the way uh, it should have, uh, the way it could have brought Russia in a bit more? That's the challenge. And all of the fear-induced aggression didn't, didn't occur today. Yeah. It causes a much, much further back. So, yeah, I mean, that's we certainly need to look at things in their historical and political mm. context. Look, here's really what I want to say in response to this kind of case. I don't want to deny it. I, mm. I don't want to mm. deny that sometimes some countries will make land grabs. And with respect to those types of countries, it might make sense to have a military because mm. uh, it will deter them. I'm just saying, if you build up a powerful military in order to deal with that problem, you create for yourself another kind of problem. Yeah, yeah. And we're not and that, accounting for that. Yeah. 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 And so yeah. Th- yeah, yeah. that's it. You know, you might... Yeah. Let's say, you know... Let's have a rational argument about it rather than just... Essentially, yeah. yeah. So, you know, okay, let's get some WMDs so that that Russia never never attacks us Mm. and tries to take some of our land. But, uh uh-oh, now the Americans are saying, we've got to go, this European dictator is building WMDs Mm. and you end Mm. up being another Iraq. Mm. That's all I'm saying. We focus entirely on, you know, you've got the cost-benefit table of your military establishment, and we focus tunnel vision only yeah. on the benefits, yeah. not appreciating how when you militarize to solve one set of problems, you introduce another set of problems. Yeah. And the costs that we don't talk about. And one of the things that, in fact, chapter one that you uh, talk about is military conditioning uh, and how it can cause or contributes to moral damage. And yeah. that's be- you know the first cost to identify in your book as one that we don't really address. And I, and I love that one because that was a really, really powerful opening. It's definitely not one we talk about, uh, but one that I've, that has come up in my podcast so many times uh, already is this kind of desensitization process that occurs just by wearing a uniform. Well, what do you mean by that exactly? Sort of two things I need to define. By military conditioning, and I kind of, in hindsight, I, I can see I'm not precise enough with that term in my book, but uh, I simply kind of mean the, the training and socialization that recruits undergo in order to make them effective on the battlefield, okay? Uh, from repetitive drill training to the in, indoctrination of military values and, you know, like loyalty and sacrifice. Shaving so, your head day one. All, all that, yeah, yeah to yeah. make you part of the unit, to break down your individuality, all of that, everything that the institution puts you through in order to turn you into a competent soldier that's what I mean by yeah. military conditioning, okay? Yeah. Just to interpret in my mind, the way I see it is, is it's creating a particular in-group that is bounded and governed by certain values and norms that exists for the sole purpose of prosecuting war. 
in other words, killing. And we don't talk about it as plainly as that, but ultimately when you boil down to it, that's what it does. So, Perfect, right? Could, yeah. Couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah, th- yeah, that's right. So it's kind of making people more comfortable with politically motivated violence or violence under orders. Now, as you say, w- one point I try and make in the book is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion of quote unquote moral injury now. Mm among ethicists and philosophers, among psychologists, among military people more generally, this term has really caught on, Mm. moral injury. And most of the discussion is about the moral injuries that people sustain in war. Mm. What does the experience of war do to you? And that's all very important. But I think we need to appreciate that it's not just the experience of war that inflicts moral injury. It's Also, the preparation for war, military conditioning can also be morally injurious Mm. in one sense of the word. So the tricky thing is the term moral injury just, it's not used with any consistency. Mm. There are at least two things that we might mean by it. It either refers to an kind of an acute aggravation of the moral emotions like guilt, shame, remorse, or it refers to the silence of those emotions. Mm. Here's an example that I that I like that I think illustrates well. So following pair of cases, you got the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, mm. right? So you got Claude Etherley. He was the, the reconnaissance pilot that flew the reconnaissance plane over Hiroshima immediately before the bombing. And he could hardly live with himself afterwards, right? He was completely guilt-ridden to the point of dysfunction. Mm. Uh, he became a, a pacifist, not that that's a form of dysfunction, mm. but it can, you know, <laughs> yeah, set, yeah. sent letters of apology to the families and their victims, attempted suicide, psychiatric treatment. He even um, became this kind of petty criminal. He would do very bizarre mm. things, like mm. he'd, he'd go around town and he'd shoplift. Just to get punished, yeah. Just to get punished because mm. he, he was treated like a hero by the American public, but he didn't see himself that way. He felt like a real piece of shit. Mm, and mm, he wanted mm. the community to see him that way. Mm. So that's what some people see as moral injury, right? That, that sort of experience, this kind of overactive conscience mm. that makes it impossible for you to live a normal life. But compare that guy, Claude Etherley, to the guy that actually dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. His name was Paul Tibbetts. And he was, by most accounts, completely untroubled. Right? He even went to, like, afterwards went to model aircraft shows with children and like reenacted the obliteration the scene, of, yeah. yeah. So didn't bother him at all that he killed scores of innocent people. He was sort of numb or indifferent. Mm. So his, his conscience wasn't overactive. It was just completely inactive, in, non-responsive to this. Mm. But we can't help but feel that there's something wrong with that, mm. right? So this moral numbness or indifference that's what some people mean by moral injury. And I think that's a, a better use of the, the term. Yeah, the the yeah. thought is a morally decent, healthy person can't kill people without being distressed by it. Even mm. if it's justified, it's a sign of virtue that it's difficult for you. Mm. Mm. Right? That's really interesting. I mean, I've, I've had a couple of people, uh, even recently, uh, special forces operators who've been, in, you know, who've engaged in the act of killing time and time again. And, and, in, and I've asked him these questions, you know, how does that feel? And the response is that, you know, your training kicks in and you just do what you do. It's, it's surgical, it's precise. You don't 
necessarily mourn over it. You don't celebrate it. You don't cherish it. And I'm and I'm always perplexed because I, I've I've never had to fire a gun in anger, so I wouldn't have a clue what that would feel like. As much as I've envisioned myself in those situations, like like most of us have in, in some sense, I'm always perplexed. You know, is that you know? And my dad was on the front lines for three and a half years. I know, I know he's been engaged in, in the act of killing uh, himself. I, I don't know what impact that's had on him. He's he, you know, uh, he's had challenges with coming to terms with what's what's happened, but I just can't still clearly delineate if this is. You know, somebody who says, no, it's fine. It's just, it's part of the job. You know, is that already a moral injury? I mean, is that, you know, because it, maybe it ought to be, I, I don't know. But also then want our, especially our, uh, you know, frontline soldiers to have the the defensive mechanisms to go and do the job that we're asking them to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so so I'm just, I'm a little bit torn about, is, you know, how to actually define, you know, these sentences that, you know, it's just part of the job kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything contradictory or, or mm. inconsistent in having these two yeah. these two thoughts simultaneously. So I, I agree with everything that you just said. Mm. Yes, if we're deploying these people to go overseas and do things on the state's behalf, such as kill, mm. we want to do everything that we can to ensure that doesn't ruin them for life. Mm. Yeah. Okay, fine. Therefore, if we're going to have a military, we do want to for lack of a better term, desensitize. Mm. We do want to numb them to some extent to protect them from this kind of psychological, emotional, moral disintegration. But all I'm trying to emphasize is that's a cost. Mm. You're degrading these people's character. Don't try and explain it away by denying the label moral injury or by saying, well, look, uh, we want this to happen. It's justified. We need to protect them. I agree with all of that. But that doesn't mean that we're not doing something that's kind of regrettable and unfortunate mm, mm. to these people. So, yeah. you know, my answer to the question, when you encounter someone who can kill people and you ask them, how does that feel? And they say, it feels like nothing to me. Mm. I would say that person is already morally injured. It's not to blame them. It's not to say that we are not justified mm. in doing this to them for the sake of protecting them against even worse harms. Mm. That's all still open and on the table. I'm just saying it is what it is, right? We have it's, to account for it, yeah. Yeah, it has to be in the accounting. I yeah. couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I recently put out a, a short little thought bubble on the, the Forge where I talk about it. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, uh, which is a three-page essay that basically talks about a town that lives in bliss, but it has one child that's locked away in a cellar ah, that's suffering, right. right? And they can continue on and live their bliss, but only for as long as this child is suffering and they will go and feed it and, you know, uh, see the child and children will be taken Then This is the sacrifice for our bliss that we live in our peaceful omelas. When I read that, it resonated so strongly with me about that's exactly what we're doing to our soldiers. You know, our soldiers ultimately could be viewed as the suffering child in the basement you know, and, and as I worded in, in, in the piece, you know, of our civility, you know, this is the child in the base of the, of the supposed civility that we so dearly embrace, especially when we sit on our high horse, you know, in the kind of developed societies and say, hey, we're morally just and right. How do we manage the, this kind of desensitization and moral in, injury post-conflict? Because it's, if it's not discussed that, hey, when you join, we're going to take you from, you know, starting point of, let's assume a healthy person that has, you know, the right kind of moral compass and you know, broadly speaking, what at least the average person would think is the right thing to do. Uh, we're going to now shift 
and hope to take all those values with you, but we're going to expose you to all of these circumstances that are going to, in a very, very, in some cases, minor way, morally degrade you. How do we then, well, firstly, talk about that openly, Mm. uh, Mm. because that's going to be a disincentive for people joining. Uh, But also, more importantly, how do we deal with it, you know, when people come back or when they're wanting to, you know, leave the military? How do you unpack that? Yeah. So great question. And I don't, I don't know yet. When I say I don't know, I'm responding to the part of your question, which is, what do we do about this? Mm, mm, yeah. So there's, um, there's a really great line. It was one of the training officers in Vietnam, an American who was responsible for putting recruits through some kind of final indoctrination as they arrived in the country. Mm. And he did an interview some years later where he said something along the following lines. It's not verbatim, but it's, it's mm-hmm. roughly this. He says, every time I turn on the TV and I hear news about a murder, I wait and see if it was a Vietnam veteran. Mm. And he said, we turn those people into killers. We program them to kill, but nobody's unprogramming them, man. Mm. Right? So unprogramming, right? So that's what we need to think about. I mean, if, if it's true, and, and a lot of people are going to deny this, that military conditioning does involve this moral degradation, moral injury. And look, the jury's still out on that. I mean, my hypothesis is that it aims to inflict mm. moral injury, okay? But I can't say definitively whether it actually does consistently degrade moral character. You'd need some kind of empirical study for that. Mm. But we, we do have some empirical studies, which show that military conditioning does change people's character Mm. long-term, even if they weren't deployed, Mm. right? So there was a study out of Germany, uh, and it doesn't really tell us anything about whether people that go through military conditioning are more comfortable with violence. That may be its aim, but we don't know if that actually happens consistently. But this study did show that people that have gone through military conditioning are generally uh, less agreeable. And when Mm. they unpack what that means, it's more prone to conflict Mm. in their day-to-day civilian lives. So we do have evidence to suggest that military conditioning affects your character. We've got empirical evidence for that. Mm. But okay, so, so let's just kind of grant that military conditioning does things to people's personalities. And I suspect certainly one of the things it aims to do is to, to, morally desensitize Mm. people. So what do we do about that? To me, this is a little bit of wishful thinking, but Mm -hmm. some some commentators in this space would have us believe that as long as we do it right, this kind of conditioning and desensitization, it'll kind of lapse over a period of time. It's just kind of a temporary thing, you Mm. like an anesthetic. You, you know, inject it and they go numb. But then it, it wears off. The body mm-hmm. just kind of flushes it out. Now, some of the commentary in this space suggests that military conditioning is kind of the same. Mm. You prepare people to go and fight, to go and kill, but their sensitivity is going to return by itself. Mm. And again, to me, that's wishful thinking. And we also have no empirical support for that. Mm. So if that's far-fetched, then we've got to think, what can we do both kind of post-facto after Mm. somebody has been morally injured to, you know, unprogram them, or if we can't unprogram them to kind of restore their moral sensibilities, maybe we need to compensate them 
mm. in some way. Maybe that's something for which compensation is owed. Mm. And the form that the compensation might take, I read a, a fascinating article recently, which was about, there was a case in the US where a veteran goes on trial for murder. Mm. He's receives a sentence, but then the court finds that his lawyer failed to mention that this person's a veteran. Mm. And they deemed that to be a, an example of insufficient support as counsel. Mm. Basically saying, had we known that he was a veteran, we would have given him a lighter sentence. So the fact that you didn't mention it as, as his lawyer means you didn't do a good enough job. So retrial. Mm. Right. Wow. So what does that suggest, right? This article argues that this that might seem bizarre. Like, why should it matter? You committed a mm. murder. Why should it matter if you're a military veteran? But this person argues that essentially, if the state is responsible for the fact that you are now the sort of person that's more liable to commit murder because you've been morally injured in the course of your military conditioning, then the state should discount mm. the penalties that it imposes on you afterwards. I'm not sure if how convincing that is, but that might, that might be another yeah. form of like compensation, right? Mm. So there's sort of like, what can we do after the fact? But I'm, I'm more interested in what can we do before the fact? Mm. A kind of prophylactic interventions which prevent the onset of moral injury in the first place. Mm. And there has been some discussion around um, certain kinds of bioscientific interventions, you know, giving certain drugs mm. like, you know, Adderall and Propranolol and so on. So th those are the two things that we need to explore. What can we do in advance to try and have our cake and eat it too, if you like, yeah. to yeah. try and ensure that our soldiers can do their job effectively without emotional disintegration, but at the same time without being kind of morally injured. Mm. So is there something we can do? There hasn't been any research. Yeah. And I'm proposing to do that, <laughs> yeah. that research. That's where I'm going that's from the next, here. Yeah, that's the next, the evolution, I guess, of this, uh, of this line of inquiry. There will be some hurdles, obviously, uh, you know, not least because in some circles, at least, people think that this whole idea of moral injury or PTSD of late, that it's overblown and that it's potentially exploitation or trying to get something from the government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Undoubtedly, there's a percentage. Uh, you know, like with everything, there's a percentage yeah. that will exploit the system. But I think it's, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I think for me, at least the, the way I see it is it probably because we're now talking about it and it's, you know, a lot more encouraged to talk about. And we're learning things that we didn't know previously about this very point. There was another interesting point, and I think it's related to our previous discussion. And, and you talk about the civil military gap, especially related to the culture you know, of a military versus a culture of a, of a society. And you quote Huntington, who previously said that the military needs to be culturally different from a liberal society. Can you explore that? Uh, because I think that really speaks to our previous discussion as well. Yeah, so th the thought is, and, and this is something we have, we have evidence for as well, a, a quite a lot from quite a few different countries. Wherever you've got a professional standing army where a, a subsection of society makes soldiering their livelihood, Mm. So the kind of arrangement that most liberal democratic countries have now, the military and civilian worlds will tend to kind of drift apart and develop different and sometimes conflicting sets of values, ideologies, attitudes. It's not just in liberal democratic countries, but it tends to be most pronounced in liberal democratic countries because, like you say, in these countries, what the civilian population values most 
in your average liberal democratic country is what they've been conditioned to value most, uh, individual freedom. Themselves, yeah. Yeah, personal (laughs) fulfillment, self-realization, ambition, you know. But if that's the sort of thing that soldiers valued, armed forces wouldn't be able to function very effectively if they had this kind of me mentality. So in, in the military, different values prevail and have to prevail, arguably. Obedience to authority, you know, which is the opposite of individual autonomy. Service before self, which is the opposite of uh, self-realization. Yeah. Okay, so, so the idea is a society that's organized around military values and principles. Well, that wouldn't be a liberal democratic society. While a military organized around liberal democratic values, well, that wouldn't be an effective military. So, mm. so that's why this gap emerges. That's why yeah. it's plausible to say, you know, you have to have this gap. Yeah. Like I say, we've got evidence of it. Lots of different countries. Uh, I think in f- the most recent that I came across was in France, mm-hmm. where they kind of surveyed people in the military and surveyed civilians to see how they ranked the importance of certain things. So, you know, on the list, you had things like patriotism and civic duty and discipline. And, you know, the military people put those values first. Civilians put those values last, right? Mm. What they put first was human rights, individual freedom, right? So, so that's the civil military gap. Mm. I recognize it. I hear it. I know it. A sample of one. It, it really speaks to me because that's absolutely what the military is. It's about, you know, giving your life for, for your social group, uh, whatever that social group might be. Or for your mate. And I think there was another interesting thing you talked about in the book is that's like the warrior class sense of superiority or the veteran superiority complex. What is the veteran superiority complex? And I'm also conscious that a lot of my audience are veterans. So this is not about in any way, and I'll let you explain it, but it's certainly not in any way to shame with any great veterans. Look, it's not a term that I coined. It's a, mm, yeah, a the, term It's yes. a term coined by a veteran. Yes. Yeah. Right? Carl yeah. Forsling. So, I mean... We, Essentially, what what happens sometimes when you get this civil military gap that we just described, Mm -hmm. military personnel will not only see themselves as different from civilians, but better than Mm. civilians. They don't get it. The civilians don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Or or they're they're just, in some respect, they're deficient compared to military people. You know, they're less fit. They're less disciplined. Uh, Whatever the case, yeah, they're less efficient Fill in the blanks. Prove me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's justified or not. So, so, you know, where does this, Mm. I think it's an interesting question to think about where this veteran superiority complex comes Mm. from. Like what what are the roots of it? It hasn't been studied enough. There are probably a few things that contribute. To some extent, I think it's just a natural byproduct Mm. of the civil military gap, Mm. right? If I've been conditioned to value, say, service before self, but these civilians are out there living these completely self-absorbed materialistic lives, which are the contradiction of my values, of course, I'm going to think less of them. Hmm. They're living by values, which according to my values are pathetic and despicable. But there's there's probably more to the story and and it hasn't really been fleshed out. A recent issue of Journal of Military Ethic, Larry Lengbeyer uh, speculates that Things like war commemoration mm. and thank you for your service. These practices, he thinks, they feed into the veteran superiority complex. Yeah. I just can't see how that wouldn't be true. I know what it's like on Anzac Day when you're walking around with, you know, with some medals and, uh, you know, this is your day. The sense of overwhelming pride and joy that uh, most veterans feel, and also the community feels 
the need to acknowledge, you know, and like you said, the thank you for your service. And of course, you know, when you're being praised time and time again, that of course has an impact on one uh, on one's feeling of self. I think we, we kind of need to talk about though the there's sort of the, the positive aspects of this, mm, yeah. then there are the dangers associated with it yeah. as well. Because, you know, your listeners might be thinking, okay, so there are these practices that make veterans feel kind of superior and good about themselves. So what? Like, mm. you know, what, what's the big deal? The risk is, and, and this kind of comes to one of the other risks or costs mm. of, of mm-hmm. military establishments. One of the risks is with this veteran superiority complex comes a lesser concern for the civilians that are in the theater, mm. right? So I'm going to show less regard to them because they're just civilians. They're like the mm. civilians back home, lazy, fat. Mm. I mean, but it also feeds into the risk of military coup. Mm. So it's basically, you know, circumstances under which the people in the military become resentful of the fact that they are subordinate to the civilian world. Mm, mm. So it's sort of a, a, a practical extension of the, mm. the veteran superiority complex. So It's an interesting one because you dedicated an entire chapter to this. And, and again, for us in democratic societies, that might strike people as a surprise. You know, people will go, as if Australia is at risk of a coup. You yeah. know, why is that a cost that we need to account for? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, but there is, some, there, there is some surprises to that, isn't there? Yeah, like it's uh, since the invasion of Ukraine... It, Something struck me. Everyone's response to that has been, you see, this is why we need a powerful military. But then over the last two years, several states have been conquered by their own military. Mm. Uh, Myanmar, Sudan, Burkina Faso. And we don't mm. look at these cases and say, you see, that's mm. why we shouldn't have a military. Yeah. And that's curious. Yeah. The fact that our military can defend us against external threats is seen as a compelling reason to have a military. But the fact that the military itself poses a threat to its parent society, that's not seen as a reason at all against Mm. having a military. And there's something weird going on there, particularly because considering that statistically, militaries are much more likely to attack their own country than they are to attack a foreign country, Mm. right? So how many interstate wars have there been since, say, 1950, Mm. where one military is used to defend itself against an invading military? Mm. Yeah, there have been a few cases, a few Mm. times that's happened. How many militaries have attacked their own country, though, mm, mm. over that same period of yeah. time? It's about 470. Yeah, right? wow. Okay. So it's, it's an average of nine coups every year for 50 years. Wow. Right? Yeah. So states create these militaries to defend them against external attack, but then that institution becomes a threat to that state. And sometimes, sometimes it really looks like an irrational trade-off. Yeah. I was reading about Bolivia recently. It hasn't been invaded, has no enemies to speak of. Mm in this day and age at least. But since 1950, the Bolivian military has attempted 23 coups. Yeah, wow. Right. So over that time. So, you know, like going back to the domestic analogy, imagine you had a, you hired a private security guard Mm. to, to defend you. Yeah. Yeah. When you're you're walking around in Bankstown, Mm. um, (laughs) you know, to protect you. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, You'd need one. (laughs) To protect you from violent hooligans, mm. right? But mm-hmm. then he starts getting drunk and, and beating you up every other day. Yeah. You know, maybe you'd just be better off without a security guard, huh? Mm. And I think we can extrapolate to some states. Some of them I look at and I think, you know, you'd probably be better off without a military, yeah. all things considered. Sure, if you get rid of it, you're going to be vulnerable in some ways. But yeah. Yeah. there's always trade-offs. There's trade-offs with everything. Yeah, um, yeah exactly right. But, I mean, the, the response would be that, you know, well, we're in a democracy and, you know, or our government dictates how we're going to use the military. 
Yeah. So th- this is a kind of really important addition. There's one question we need to ask is about relative likelihoods. Mm. Okay. You might say, okay, yeah, coups happen, like I, hundreds of them. But you might think, well, they coups are something that happen over there. Mm. Coups are something that happen to other countries, you know, in Africa and South yeah. America. They don't happen yeah. in in um, mature democracies, for mm. example. Mm. Thing is, it's just not true. Mm. So the single greatest threat to democratic governments is still the military coup. So mm. most democratic governments that have fallen over in the last 50 years have fallen over because of military coups. So mm. it turns out the fact that a state is a democracy doesn't really insulate it very much from a coup. Mm. Mm. And, and there's been some very interesting research around this. For example, some of the research shows that well, in some ways, democracy helps to forestall a coup because, mm. you know, democratic governments in some of these developing countries, you know, you've got this local dictator and mm. he's very paranoid. So he starts to purge the military because he's worried about them. So they look at him and they're fearful of him. So they might attack him mm. in kind of fear-induced aggression, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in democracies, that doesn't really happen. The military doesn't have so much to fear mm. because democratic governments don't behave this way with these preemptive purges and so on. So that makes a coup less likely. Mm. But then on the other hand, some of this research suggests precisely because democratic governments are less likely to really seriously fight back mm. in the event of a coup, that makes a coup more attractive. Mm. Mm. So. Yeah. Basically, democracy has contradictory effects yeah. on the likelihood of coup. And it turns out they just kind of cancel each other out. So mm. democratic institutions by themselves don't really have any much bearing on the likelihood of a coup. Other things do, though. For example, it's not so much democracy. It's more kind of affluent capitalism, right? Mm. So rich countries are much less likely to. Yeah, so okay. yeah. the, the argument... We're a democracy, so it won't happen here. That's much less plausible than the mm. argument, we're rich, so it won't happen here. Okay. Yeah. And that's true, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the coup proneness of different countries varies radically, mm. but so does the likelihood of being invaded by a foreign country. That also varies very radically. So, it just goes into the calculus, yeah. right? We've got to think, okay, if we have a military, there's a risk of coup, but what's the likelihood of that mm-hmm. happening? What's the likelihood of, of us withstanding it? If we don't withstand it, what will its consequences actually be? What will it look like day to day? We've got to compare that against, you know, even if the possibility is very low, Yeah. but what if your possibility of being attacked by a foreign country is even lower? Yeah. It's are still, you accounting for that? Yeah. It's still arguably yeah. an irrational risk. Your, your security is still arguably going down. So what is the calculus for Australia in your mind? I, I've gotten this question before, and I'm nervous about answering it just because mm-hmm. I'm I'm ignorant of, of so much history and political science. Mm. But you know the kind of commentaries that I look at very widely. So l- let's go back. You know the the, the prospect of China mm-hmm. invading Australia. I, I was reading something on the Australia Institute's website mm-hmm. just a couple of days ago, and this was back 2018. Things may have changed, although I doubt it. But they did a survey and. of Australians think there's a significant likelihood of of, of China attacking Taiwan. 42% of Australians think that there's a significant likelihood of China invading Australia. Oh, wow. 
And that, that strikes, like, if that's true, let's just go with it. Let's say that that's true, that China is itching to get its hands on our land and resources and they're not worried about putting out bushfires. So let's just say that there's a significant likelihood. And if we don't have these deterrent capabilities, then it's highly likely that we're going to be conquered and subdued by mm. China. Mm. Well, if that's true, if that's true, then the cost that we should be willing to bear mm. for the sake of having the deterrent is quite high, mm. of course. But if, on the other hand, other voices just say, you know, I, I, I might think of it this way, how many invasions has China participated in in the last 50 years versus mm. how many invasions has Australia participated mm. in? So this is just a way of saying, we're not going to get invaded by China. Mm. They have no interest in that. If we mm. get attacked by them, it's more likely to be one of these cases of fear-induced defensive mm. aggression. They're more worried about us meddling in their affairs. So, that, so if the chances of this sort of thing are very low, then the cost we should be willing to bear is accordingly lower. Like I'm reluctant to give you an unequivocal answer yeah, to no, of course. the question. Just no, because... You can't. I mean, yeah, there are so many variables. Maybe I'm just irrationally optimistic and naive and, you know, I, I just don't think that there's a significant likelihood mm. of China invading Australia. Mm. So in that case, I'm inclined to say, insofar as the circumstances under which we're likely to need a military are less likely to arise. Naturally, I'm going to say the cost we should be prepared to sustain yeah. for the sake of the institution is less. But whether we've we're whether we're at that threshold, whether the Australian military is too costly, all things considered, mm. I don't yeah. know. Like yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just trying I'm just trying to tell people these are the things that you need to think about. Think about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've got to plug in your own values though. I can't give exactly. you values. So Ned, that all makes uh, perfect sense. And interestingly, I think it also pivots to the next thing I want to talk about, and that's the cognitive biases you talk about, because everything we've just touched on, you know, about our perceptions of the threat, as well as how, how that perception is even installed or programmed into our mind, you know, has a lot to do with how we, you know, how we think. And of course, our biases, our heuristics, what we've seen before, et cetera, play a big part. There's a really interesting chapter, probably my favorite chapter of the book, is the cognitive biases that uh, may lead us to the misuse of the military. There's the first part is the obvious confidence on the prospect of success, you know, by political leaders when considering war. You know, what is the issue here? What is this overconfidence uh, kind of calculus that ends up playing out uh, as we contemplate war? So uh, according to the just war tradition, it's morally permissible for states to use force under certain circumstances when certain conditions mm. are met. Needs to be a just cause, needs to be proportional, needs to be a last resort to have a reasonable prospect of success. So when I say misuse of military force, I basically mean any use of military force in excess of those, what is prescribed by those conditions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I agree with that. All of those conditions need to be met. The problem that I think just war theorists haven't taken seriously enough is that our minds are full of unconscious biases that are prone to distort our assessment of these various conditions. They act as though we're, you know, the the mind is like a truth detection machine mm. and we can just see clearly when it's proportional, when it's a last, and it's just not the case. There are these gremlins in our heads that likely that steer us towards false positives. Mm. Mm-hmm. So take reasonable prospect, prospect of success, just says it's wrong to wage war where it's predictably futile. If you've mm. got, 
if you've got no realistic chance of winning, you shouldn't Not go just, to war. Yeah. 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 The problem is states and their military generals always think they have a reasonable chance of winning, even if they don't. And that's because there's an unconscious bias towards overconfidence. We're all guilty of it. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks that they're better than they are. And there's sort of an evolutionary explanation for that. What's the explanation? So the, the explanation is, uh, I'm, I might butcher it here, but it's something like in our evolutionary history, there were people that were overconfident and people that were kind of appropriately confident and people that were underconfident. If you were one of the overconfident types, and again, this is in our way back in our yeah. evolutionary yeah, history, yeah. you were more likely to seize different opportunities. Sometimes they would backfire because you're overconfident and you've overestimated your own capabilities. You died, yeah. And you died. But in the scheme of things, basically, these people out-survived the others. They reproduced more than the others. Yeah. So that's why that's kind of an evolutionary hangover, Mm. even though it might not serve the inhabitants of today's world in the way that it did our ancestors, but it's still there. Yeah. Right. So, so it's just this is not anything specifically about military people. Or- no, absolutely. It's part of able, human evolutionary. And, and again, it, yeah. it resonates. I mean, it, you know, we're, we're always told, you know, be confident, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, demand what you want. You know, this yeah, is, yeah, yeah. you know, if you don't stand up for yourself, no one else will, et cetera, et cetera. This is part of the almost folklore that comes with, yeah. uh, you know, success and achievement, et cetera. So, it, again, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's probably, I mean, something deep seated in that. Mm-hmm. But then I think what you're alluding to as well is that it's also kind of culturally reinforced. Mm, mm-hmm, and, yeah. and maybe that's where the military environment's particularly important because I get a sense that confidence is especially prized in the military. Absolutely. You know, back yourself. Yeah. Don't hesitate. Yeah. So yeah. it kind of, <laughs> it's not to say that military conditioning is the cause of overconfidence. It's just to say that it exacerbates it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it reinforces. So, so that, this is why I mean, there's a great book called Overconfidence and War, and it just shows that the wars from the century 1815 to 1915, they were all undertaken with every side firmly believing that it will win. Mm, yeah. So fast forward, the Americans thought that Iraq would be a cakewalk. Putin thought that Ukraine would be over by now. Mm, mm, yeah. So you know, just war theory demands a reasonable prospect of success. But then you've got this cognitive bias, which impairs people's ability to make a sound, impartial assessment of their actual likelihood of success. So the problem is you've got this theory, but everyone always thinks that they satisfy the theory. So what good is the theory? That was going to be my question. It begs the obvious question. I mean, are we just for tradition? You know, is it an illusion uh, that is justified subjectively by those embracing it? You know, there's sufficient, uh, sufficient scope. Uh, for discussion, at least on it, it's, it's the best we've got, and I completely support uh, the thinking behind it. It's again, it is the best we've got, yeah. uh, but it's certainly not foolproof. Yeah. yeah. And what is the uh, Einstellung effect? So the Einstellung effect, it's kind of it's associated with what's sometimes called, you know, the law of the hammer or the mm. law of the instrument. Give a small boy, give a small boy a hammer, and he'll find that everything he encounters needs pounding. Mm. So it's just kind of the tendency. You've got this tool. And it's the tendency to develop a kind of tunnel vision where that's the only tool you can see now. And you think yeah. every problem, this is the solution. So, yeah. so Einstein effect more specifically, though, is if you've encountered a certain problem a number of times, and each time you've solved that problem with this same method, what tends to happen is 
you get this tunnel vision where that method is now the only one that you can see. Mm. And alternatives become essentially invisible to you. Yeah, uh, that's the Einstein effect. So yeah. it, it's it's another cognitive bias that leads to the overuse of military force, you know, because just war theory again tells us we shouldn't use military force unless it's a last resort. This is yeah. necessary, yeah. unless the, unless there are no peaceful alternatives. But if we're in the grip of the Einstein effect, we might fail to see these peaceful alternatives, yeah. even it, if they're yeah. even if they're there. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that this probably goes some way towards explaining why it is that some countries like the US, for example, are the ones that are always going to war. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's it becomes a fixated mindset. If that's the way you've solved problems in the past, mm. that solution is the one that's up in lights in your mind. So uh, it's yeah. more salient. So it's yeah. the one it's and thereby kind of occludes your view of all of the other mm. options. So yeah. you know, there are all yeah. of these cultural explanations about why certain countries are more war prone than others but mm. maybe this is sort of a deeper just a psychological explanation mm. we've used this method before the methods worked and now that that's just most prominent in our thinking that's the i mean and you see this as well i mean in in particularly with the us with the gun violence and and gun ownership i mean it's the, it's the same thing it's the unstilling effect having you know hey uh, the only thing that's going to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun but but you can't see the solution, yeah. And the coup analogy is very apt there as well. As well, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you have a gun in the home to protect you from outsiders, but now you need protection from insiders, from insiders. including like your children. You know, yeah. The, yeah. what are they called? Child access shootings. They're, they're yeah. so often where a child gets a hold of a gun yeah. and, shoot, and shoots a, a member of the household. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so many people just, another point of comparison, gun owners just overestimate their ability to prevent that sort of thing from happening. Mm. Uh, I read a, a study where they did interviews with parents and with children, mm. and a huge proportion of parents could have sworn that their children had never handled the firearms when they had, Yeah. right? So we overestimate our ability to control these things falling into the wrong hands and being misused. And I think the same goes for militaries, states, exaggerate their ability to prevent a coup from happening mm, yeah. uh, and other kinds of meddling by the, the military and the military industrial complex. So yeah. this is like another way that overconfidence feeds back into the discussion. I think if we had more humility and less confidence, we'd have far fewer of these kinds of problems. Yeah, But, but our minds aren't wired that way. No, because we are a programmable animal. And I think that's a difficult thing for us to acknowledge that I'm not the master of my destiny, that external influences have an impact on my behavior and that we are not as rational as we'd like to think, that we are not as autonomous uh, as we'd like to believe. Maybe the last question, and I just want to touch on the epilogue of the book, which where you talk about Gene Sharp, who's of course uh, the proponent for nonviolent ways to solving conflict. And I found it interesting that this is where you end your book. And I want to ask you why you end the book with that. Uh, and what is it that Gene Sharp or, or that line of thinking offers us in in kind of uh, in this debate about, you know, what is the military for and is, is it worth its costs? Why I ended the book this way? Partly because I wanted to end on a kind of a hopeful note. It's sort of a negative book in, in, in some ways. It's, mm -hmm. I'm kind of, I'm taking something that exists and I'm playing defense and I'm kind of saying, well, we need to think a bit more carefully about whether... It's an introspective book, I think. We should have that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the epilogue is meant to say, maybe we can have 
all of the things that this institution provides us, which we don't want to let go of, without the costs, like just have an alternative way of doing it. So Gene Sharp was the guy who said, there's this particular problem that we are faced with, the problem of international aggression, international terrorism. Maybe there's solutions to that other than giving a whole bunch of teenage boys high-powered weapons. You know, maybe we've advanced enough to think of other ways of doing that. So, so he proposed this, this, what he called a post-military defense system. And mm. it's, it's really just the one in which the civilian population of a country engages in mass coordinated subversion and sabotage to drive out a foreign aggressor, as opposed to a military defense mm. system where, you, mm. where, where soldiers with guns do that. So, you know, the, the logic behind it is simply foreign aggressors have goals. They, they don't normally attack just for the sake of it. They're trying to achieve something. If they come, you know, if we do get invaded by China, it's not just for entertainment's sake. It's the, the, to conquer and rule, to extract resources, mm. to gain control over the native people and profit off our labor and so on. Mm-hmm. Okay, So aggressors have goals. In order for the aggressor to achieve these objectives at an acceptable cost, he needs the native population to behave mm. in certain ways, right? Mm. So if you want to profit off our labor, well, we need to labor. Mm. If you want to extract resources from our land, well, you'll need participation of farmers and technicians and miners and transport workers and so on. Mm. So the aggressor can't typically get these things that he came for without some measure of cooperation from the target mm. population, right? So a post-military defense system kind of looks like this, and I'm really simplifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get invaded. In response, the people just withdraw from the economic, political, social life of the state. We don't work. We don't pay taxes. We don't obey regulations. And we also engage in subversion and sabotage. We do mm. blockades and sit-ins and, and we dismantle the infrastructure and, and machinery and so on. Mm. And now, sure, like you might be thinking, oh, yeah, but isn't he going to use violence to force us to do that stuff? Yeah, you know, the aggressor might respond with violence, but he's going to use violence anyway. Whether we are using violence or non-violence, the aggressor is prepared to use violence. So mm. that goes without saying. That's mm. a constant. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the post-military defense arrangement is about mass non-cooperation and obstruction mm. to the point that the aggressor has to put more into the occupation mm. than he gets out of it. So yeah. it's Winning not by force, but by p- kind of political economics. Mm, right? mm. The people stubbornly refuse to play along. The aggressor needs to spend all of these extra resources enforcing compliance, mm. bringing in his own manpower to do the jobs that our farmers want. After a while, the fruits of the conquest just get whittled down and it's yeah. no longer a winning proposition and they yeah. bugger off. And read Sharp's work. He's, there's been so many cases of this sort of thing in history. In- yeah. And I think it it stands up. It stands up to statistically stands up as the more That's, effective way to. Uh, yeah, look, you know, listeners might be thinking, okay, you know, that might work sometimes, but it's not going to work all the time. Yeah, but violence is not going to work all the time either. Mm-hmm. You know, the biggest military in the world spent twenty years and how many trillions of dollars replacing the Taliban with the Taliban. Mm-hmm. You know, how violence yeah. work out in this? So exactly, yeah. th- there's always nothing's guaranteed to succeed. And furthermore, we have no real reason to believe that violence is more likely to succeed. Mm. So why do we stick with it despite yeah. the 
costs. The costs. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, have we evolved enough now to start seeing beyond it uh, and to acknowledge that uh, just the, the physiology of, of young men and guns, uh, you know, the testosterone pumping through the sense of uh, the need to belong, the you know, need for status. All of these yeah. things contribute to to violence, and we see this time and time again. But Ned, I know that we've uh, really kind of hit the hard right uh, of our timing, so uh, I just want to say thank you so much. I've uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed the book. There's plenty more that we could have talked about, and uh, in saying that, I hope that I uh, can speak with you again at some point in the near future because uh, I really like the way. Uh, you're capturing a very, very important topic, one that's not discussed. Thanks very much, Maz. It's been been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.